Exodus chapter 33, beginning in verse 7. It says, Moses took his tent and pitched it outside the camp, far from the camp, and called it the tabernacle of meeting. And it came to pass that everyone who sought the Lord went out to the tabernacle of meeting, which was outside the camp. And so it was, whenever Moses went out to the tabernacle, that all the people rose, and each man stood at his tent door and watched Moses until he had gone into the tabernacle. And it came to pass, when Moses entered the tabernacle, that the pillar of cloud descended and stood at the door of the tabernacle, and the Lord talked with Moses. All the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the tabernacle door, and all the people rose and worshipped, each man in his tent door. And so the Lord spoke to Moses face to face, as a man speaks to his friend, and he would return to the camp, but his servant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, did not depart from the tabernacle. Heavenly Father, we come before you once again this morning, desiring to meet with you, desiring to hear you speak to our hearts. We pray that you would soften and prepare our hearts for all that you desire to speak. And Lord, we ask that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit, that we would be discerning, and I pray that you would give me your words to speak and not my own, and Lord, that our hearts would truly be receptive to your leading and guiding. We also lift up Pastor Charlie and his wife, Ceci, as they're spending time with family and preparing to make their way back tomorrow. We pray your blessings upon them, Lord, that you would bring them home safely, that they would be refreshed and just ready to, to do all that you've placed in their heart to do here in this fellowship. And we thank you for them. We thank you for this time. And we ask and pray all these things. In the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, amen. Well, one of the interesting things that we start to see here about Moses is that he's come a long way in his relationship with God, and he's grown as a man, he's grown as a, a servant of the Lord, and he's grown as a leader. When, when you first see Moses come onto the scene in the beginning of the book, Moses is, is a conflicted person. Moses is still trying to decide who he's for. He's trying to decide if he's an Egyptian, if he's uh, an Israelite. He's trying to decide if God is truly who he says he is. And really, once he begins to realize that, he has that burning bush experience, he's trying to figure out if he's really worth serving, if he's really worth following, and if this is something for him. And so he goes through, he's got all of these questions in his head. He has this burning bush experience. He goes through, the Lord tells him that, that he needs to go back to Egypt and he's going to be the one to deliver the children of Israel. He says, no, you've got the wrong guy. I, I can't even speak. I'm tongue-tied. You know, send somebody else. God says, no, you're the one that's going to go. You're the one that I've called. And he says, well, at least send my brother. And so Aaron goes with him. They go through and they do all of these miraculous miracles in the land of Egypt. First, they, they talk to the children of Israel. They kind of get them to understand that I am, that God has sent them. And then they go and they talk to Pharaoh. And they have all of these variety of plagues. And, and finally, Pharaoh relents and he lets them go. But then uh, he changes his mind after he's let the children of Israel go. And so Moses is leading these people. They get to the Red Sea. It parts. And then as they go through and they're crossing over to the other side, the, the Egyptian chariots are chasing after them. And so then, as soon as everybody has crossed over and the Egyptian chariots are still in the middle of the ocean, all of the water comes back and it engulfs all of them. 
And so they've been delivered mightily in multiple ways. Then they keep coming further, and now the children of Israel are complaining because they, they don't have water, because they don't have food. So Moses is commanded to strike a rock, and literally water streams forth out of a rock. They, they start receiving the manna. They, they have the quail. So they have all of these things taking place. God has continued to protect them, to watch over them. And Moses has grown all along the way, probably more than anyone else in the children of Israel. More than anyone else in this nation, Moses has really gotten to see God for who he is. And that's where we get to the passage that we read to open up, is that Moses set up his tent outside of the camp, and he called it the tabernacle of meeting. And this is where anyone who wanted to speak to God would have to go. And Moses, when he would go in, you get to verse 11 of chapter 33, and it's a very, very descriptive thing. It says, so the Lord spoke to Moses face to face. He spoke to him face to face as a man speaks to his friend. Now this was not literally face to face. He could not see the face of God. We're going to see that later on as we get further on into Exodus 33. That no man could look on the face of God and live. But this was as if it were a face to face conversation. We, we truly believe that this was audible. That it was something that he was actually hearing the voice of God. And he was having a, an audible conversation back and forth. But I love the fact that it describes it. As to a friend, as a man speaks to his friend. And so we come from where Moses was at when he started, where he didn't really even know who God was. He has this burning bush experience. He goes through all of the plagues. The, God delivers the children of Israel out. He's provided for them even once they've been in the desert. And now they've sinned, which we're going to get into in a little bit. They've fallen off the cart. They've done all these terrible things. And yet Moses has grown so much now. That now when God and Moses are speaking, that it's face to face as a man speaks to his friend. And that's the intimacy, the, the kind of closeness that we should desire. Today we're really going to focus a lot on Moses and his relationship with God and how he experiences the glory of God. And so there's a couple of things, but that's the first one, is that we need to desire to have that kind of an intimacy with God. That we would truly know him so well that it's as if speaking to a friend face to face. Now, just to give you a little bit more of a, an understanding, a, a recap, all the way back in Exodus chapter 20, they've already been delivered, they've been brought out, they're, they're getting where they're going. And Exodus 20, verses 18 through 23, all the people witnessed the thunderings, the lightning flashes, the sound of the trumpet, and the mountain smoking. So this is God's presence that's coming out. And when the people saw it, they trembled and they stood afar off. And then they said to Moses, you speak with us and we will hear, but let not God speak with us lest we die. So you go up and you talk to God. We see the presence of God. We see the, the thunders, the, the lightning flashes, the sound of the trumpet, the mountain smoking. This is all good for you, Moses, but you go talk to him. If he comes and he talks to us, we're all going to die. And so Moses said to the people, do not fear, for God has come to test you, and that his fear may be before you so that you may not sin. It's important that we get that. This was the reason that God had come to them that way, so that they would have that righteous, reverential awe, fear, and respect of God for a purpose, so that they might not sin. So the people, in verse 21, stood afar off, but Moses drew near the thick darkness where God was. And the Lord said to Moses, thus you shall say to the children of Israel, 
You have seen that I have talked with you from heaven. You shall not make anything to be with me. Gods of silver or gods of gold you shall not make for yourselves. Okay, so that sets us up for Exodus chapter 32. God has already made his presence very, very clear to the children of Israel. And before we've even gotten the Ten Commandments, before we've gotten into the rules and the regulations, the ordinance of the priest and all of the offerings and all the things that, that God was going to give Moses, he starts it off by giving them one simple directive. He says, you shall not make anything to be with me, gods of silver or gods of gold you shall not make for yourselves. And so then we get to Exodus 32, verse 1. Now when the people saw that Moses delayed coming down from the mountain, he's already come, he's given them the, the word of the Lord, and then he's gone back up to receive the Ten Commandments, and he spends 40 days up there getting the commandments, getting the details for the ordination, for, for the priests, for the offerings, all of these different things. And so Moses has delayed, and the people saw it, so they gathered together to Aaron, who's the second in command, and they said to him, Come, make us gods that shall go before us. For as for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So there was one directive. They had been given one commandment. Do not make gods of gold. Do not make anything else. And the very first thing that they do, it's taken 40 days, which for them must have seemed like an eternity, but it really was just a short amount of time. The very first thing that God said don't do was the very first thing that they asked Aaron to do. And so Aaron says to them in verse 2, Break off the golden earrings which are in the ears of your wives, your sons and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people broke off the golden earrings which were in their ears, and they brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand, and he fashioned it with an engraving tool and made a molded calf. So Aaron takes all of these things, and he directly disobeys God. He begins to engrave and to make a molded calf. And so then the people said, This is your God, O Israel, that brought you out of the land of Egypt. And so Aaron just goes with the flow. When Aaron saw it, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow is a feast to the Lord. And then they rose early on the next day, offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings, and the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And so they began here with something that we, I would suggest to you, often do ourselves in our lives, and that is trying to make something that is not of God into something that will mesh with God. They take something that is completely not of God, and they try to make it spiritual. They try to blend it into their worship of God. He, they've been given this directive. The one thing that you know absolute for certain is do not make anything to be with me, gods of silver or gods of gold, you shall not make for yourselves. And yet that's exactly what they've done. But then they compound that sin by then building an altar to it. And then Aaron decides to make this proclamation. And he says, okay, as we're worshiping this golden calf, as we are offering sacrifices to it, tomorrow's going to be a feast to God. So we're going to take this, this totally unholy, profane thing, and then we're going to try to make it holy because we're going to pray and we're going to have a feast to the Lord. It doesn't work. And all of us, I think, have experienced this at one point or another in our lives where there's something that we, we know is not right. We know that God has placed it in our hearts that we are not to do this. Maybe it's liberty. Maybe it's something that's not directly, explicitly laid out. You cannot do this. But God has confirmed it in our hearts. You, you specifically, are not to do this. And yet we try to do it and we try to make it godly. We try to, to say, well, you know, it's, it's not that bad because I'm, I'm doing this with a lot of other believers. You know, when I was younger especially, that was one of the, the ways that we would get around that is that we would all hang out. We were young, and we were Christian friends. And so if nobody spoke up and said anything, well, then it must be okay. 
And we did some really, really stupid things. And I, I mean, I, at some time, sometimes I laugh at, at the things that we did, and sometimes I just cannot believe how dumb we were. And we always tried to rationalize it. Tried to say, well, we were fellowshipping because we were doing it with other believers. Sin with other believers is still sin. That's not fellowship. Okay, let's just get that clear right now. And so they didn't get this. And so here they are. They're building this. They rise up and they do all this stuff. And so God has already told them very clearly, do not do this. This is a problem. And that's the very first thing that they do. So now we, we shift scenes here. And Moses is up on the mountain with the Lord. And so in verse 7, the Lord tells Moses, go get down for your people whom you brought out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They've turned aside quickly out of the way which I commanded them. They've made themselves a molded calf and worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, This is your God, O Israel, that brought you out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and indeed it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them, and I will make of you a great nation. And so God is talking to Moses. He's finishing up. He's wrapping up with the Ten Commandments and all the things, the ordinances and the commands that he's supposed to bring back to the people. And so the Lord has this great relationship with Moses. And so he tells him, go get down, Moses, for your people whom you brought out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. Now, one of the things that maybe you didn't notice is that God just disowned them. Okay, this is God's people. God said, these are my people. These are the ones that I'm going to deliver and I'm going to bring out of Egypt. And yet here he's telling Moses, go get down for your people whom you delivered out of Egypt have corrupted themselves. For those of us that are parents, you really fully understand what's taking place here. When I think of my kids, they're sweet and they're innocent and they never do anything wrong. When I think of my wife's kids, that's when they're evil and they pull hair and they kick and they scream and they do all those things. And, and that's, it's the same way when I get home. You know, my, I, one of the first things that I'm greeted with, not every day, but sometimes, depending on how things have gone that day, is do you know what your son did? Or do you know what your daughter did? Not our daughter, not even by name, but do you know what your son did? And so this is what's taking place here. God is having this conversation with Moses. And he says, look, you need to get down there because the people that you brought out, they have messed it up. They have completely messed it up. They've gone, they've done all these things. And then he goes so far as to say in verse 10, now therefore let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them and I will make of you a great nation. We talked a little bit about this on Wednesday night. And the first thing that probably went through Moses' mind it, it, just like most of us, I'm sure, is maybe that's not such a bad idea. Like if you were going to start over, what better place than to start right here? You know, I mean, what, what he's saying, what God is telling him is they've totally blown it. They have messed it up so bad that I'm going to have to start over with somebody that's doing it right and you're that man. The first response is probably this exponentially growing head where it's just like, man, I'm doing things right. You know, God really, really esteems me. I, I've found grace, but I've also earned some, some high place. But that's not what Moses responded with. Moses' response was to show his heart for the people. And one of the things that we need to be clear about is that God is not having his mind changed. This is not a conversation where they're going back and forth, and Moses is going to be able to convince God to change his mind. God already knew what was going to happen. God already knew what he was going to do. What this is, is this was a test for Moses. This was a test so that Moses could see where his own heart was at. 
so that Moses could see how much he had grown in his relationship with God and how much that had impacted his life as a leader. So Moses, in verse 11, pleads with the Lord his God, and he says, Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians speak and say, he brought them out to harm them, to kill them in the mountains, and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your fierce wrath and relent from this harm to your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self, and said to them, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of heaven, and all this land that I have spoken of I give to your descendants, and they shall inherit it forever. And so the Lord relented from the harm which he said he would do to his people. Moses stands in the gap. That is the first thing that we need to see about Moses as a man and Moses as a, a person who has a relationship with God. Something that we need to impart in our lives, and that is that he stood in the gap. He stood in the gap. This was not something that he had to do. This was something that he chose to do. And I would suggest to you that the reason that he chose to do this is because his heart had turned towards the people. And his heart had turned towards the people because his heart had turned closer to God. And as his heart began to get closer and closer to God, he began to see the people the way God saw the people. And so he had a deep love for them. And so he is talking to God on their behalf. He stands in the gap. And so Moses, in verse 15, turns and goes down the mountain, and the two tablets of the testimony were in his hand. The tablets were written on both sides. On the one side and on the other they were written. Now the tablets were the work of God, and the writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. And when Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, There is a noise of war in the camp. But he said, It is not the noise of the shout of victory, nor the noise of the cry of defeat, but the sound of singing I hear. And so it was, as soon as he came near the camp, that he saw the calf and the dancing. And so Moses' anger became hot, and he cast the tablets out of his hand, and he broke them at the foot of the mountain. And so, I, as I read through this, I see that I really don't believe Moses had a full grasp of what was taking place down there. God, obviously, being God, knew exactly what was happening. But when God is telling Moses, look, you need to get down there because this is what's happening, and you know what? Forget that. Just stand aside. Let my wrath burn hot against them, and I'm going to wipe them all out, and we're going to start over with you. And Moses begins to plead on their behalf before he's even found out exactly what they've done. You know, in my mind, this kind of takes me to Job. Job would offer sacrifices for his sons and daughters because he didn't know if they had sinned, but just in case. He just wanted to plead on their behalf. And this is Moses. He's pleading on their behalf, and he doesn't fully get the gravity of their depravity. He doesn't get exactly what's taking place. And so as he draws near the camp, he's coming down the mountain, and now Moses' anger becomes hot against the people. Moses is astonished at what is taking place down there. And so he's so astonished. He's so blown away. He throws down the tablets that God has given him. The handwriting of God is on these tablets. He spent 40 days not just getting these tablets, but getting the instructions to go along with these tablets. And he is so angry that he throws them to the ground and they smash in pieces. And so then in verse 20, Moses takes the calf which they had made. He burns it in the fire. He grounds it to a powder. He scatters it in the water. And then he makes them drink the water. This is the second thing is that Moses was very, very aware of accountability. Accountability. We need to be aware of accountability, especially in our own lives, but also in the lives of others. That we are aware of the mistakes that we make. 
and that we desire not to repeat them. When we have been forgiven, when we have sought that forgiveness, when we have turned away from that sin, when we have repented, then it's as if it never happened in God's eyes, but it should be something that remains in our minds. Not so that we dwell on it, not so that we constantly relive that same condemnation and conviction, but so that we are reminded not to fall back into it. Because most of us, if not all of us, struggle with similar things over and over again. It's not always going to be something totally different. I've never seen this temptation in my life. I've never fallen into this. I was just totally caught off guard. Usually the sins that we commit are sins that we have had struggles with in the past. We need to be mindful of that. We need to be mindful of how we were getting into that sin so we can avoid even getting close to it. But then we need to be accountable for that sin. And so Moses was making the people accountable. He takes this calf, he grounds it up, he puts it in the water, and he makes them drink it as a reminder to them of what has taken place. And then he turns his attention to Aaron. Moses says to Aaron, what did this people do to you that you have brought so great a sin upon them? He's talking to Aaron now, and he's bringing that same sense of accountability to Aaron. And what he's actually asking him is more literally, what could they possibly have done to torture you or threaten you that would make you lead them in this direction? Like there's no other way that this could have happened unless they had done something to coerce you, to press you into this. And it was bad. This was really bad. Another translation, the New Living Translation, translates verse 6 at the very end. It says, and they indulged in pagan revelry. Now if it's pagan, it's bad. If it's pagan revelry, it's doubly bad. And so this was not just one of those things that, well, you know, it, it kind of happened and one thing led to another. This was really, really bad. Really, really bad. And so Moses is blown away that the people would have done this, but also on top of that, he's blown away that Aaron would have allowed it. And then, as he's going to come to find out later, that Aaron was actually a, a leader of it. And so he's asking him, what could have possibly happened? And so again, when God is talking to Moses and he's telling Moses, I'm going to wipe them out, Moses does what? He steps up and he stands in the gap. Now, when Moses is coming and he's asking Aaron what took place, notice Aaron's totally different response. Aaron in verse 22 says, Do not let the anger of my Lord become hot. You know the people that they are set on evil. For they said to me, Make us gods that shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. The very first thing that he does is he throws everybody under the bus. Moses is asking Aaron, How could you let this happen? And Aaron responds, Don't get mad at me. You know them. You know them. You know that they're evil. You know that there was no way around this. You know that they would have done this whether I was there or not. They would have done this if you were there. That's what he's telling them. It, it's not my fault. Don't get mad at me. But then he takes it one step further. In verse 24, he says, I said to them, whoever has any gold, let them break it off. And so they gave it to me, and I cast it into the fire, and this calf came out. Now you guys are laughing because that's funny, because that's dumb. Like, how do you possibly think that that's a rational way to explain what happened? You know what? They, everybody gave me the gold. We had this fire going, and so I just threw it in there, and, and the calf popped out, and so, you know, it must have been a god. Like, that's foolish. It was a lie on top of throwing everybody under the bus, and it wasn't even a good lie. Like, this was a bad lie. This was a three-year-old lie. This was just bad. And so he's telling them that this is what happened. He's totally 
lost sight of accountability, of responsibility. And he's trying to pass the blame to everybody else. And he's trying to rationalize what he's done. And we can't fall into that trap. We have to be more like Moses, less like Aaron. We need to be accountable for the mistakes that we make. And stop trying to rationalize them and say, whatever it is made me do it. Sometimes we get, like I said, into that place of, of comfort and we, we rationalize our sin even simply by saying, well, I was sinning while I was with another believer. Sin is still sin and you're still accountable. Whether you were with somebody else or not, you're still accountable. I'm still accountable for every sin that I commit. And so Moses got it, Aaron didn't. But verse 25, when Moses saw that the people were unrestrained, for Aaron had not restrained them to their shame among their enemies, then Moses stood in the entrance of the camp, and he said, Whoever is on the Lord's side, come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered themselves together to him. This is the next thing for Moses. Moses was not trying to build his own little kingdom. He was not trying to build followers after himself. He was trying to see who was on God's side because that was the side that he wanted to be on and that's the side he knew everybody should be on. It doesn't say, Moses said, whoever's on my side, come to my side. It says, whoever's on the Lord's side, come to my side. We need to be those type of people. We're not building up followers of individuals. We're not even building up followers of different ministries. It's not to say that Calvary Chapel is the only solid Christian church. It's to understand that we are all trying to point people to Jesus to get them to have a relationship with Jesus. That should be our desire. That's our desire as a ministry, as a fellowship, as a body of Christ here in this church. And that, hopefully, is your desire as members of this body. That we are not trying to build Calvary Chapelites. We're trying to build people that love Jesus and know him intimately. That should be our desire, and that was where Moses was at. And so he brings them in, but then there's consequence that starts to follow, and we start to see it drop. And you know this from your own lives, I'm sure, as I know from mine, that sin has lasting consequences. You think that you've gotten over it, you think that you're done with, with the penance for it, and then there's something else that always pops up. So Moses brings these people up. The, the sons of Levi gather themselves to him. And in verse 27, Moses says to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Let every man put his sword on his side and go in and out from entrance to entrance throughout the camp. And let every man kill his brother, every man his companion, and every man his neighbor. And so the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses. And about 3,000 men of the people fell that day. And then Moses said, Consecrate yourselves today to the Lord that he may bestow on you a blessing this day, for every man has opposed his son and his brother. What an intense punishment that was. And it was a dual-edged sword. Because it wasn't just the people that lost their lives, but think about what that must have felt like for Moses and for the sons of Levi. Because they were the ones that actually had to deliver and administer that punishment. That they actually went through the camp and they killed nearly 3,000 people that were friends and family and countrymen. We're not talking about a war here. We're not talking about an enemy that was trying to kill them on the other side. We're not talking about anything like that or, or strangers, people that they'd never met. That they actually had to go and they had to administer the conviction and in this case the judgment of God to people they were close to. Again, with, when you talk about accountability, it's not just enough to, to 
to say something, but you have to really, really say it. It's not enough to, to beat around the bush and say, wow, you know, have you thought about what you're doing? You know, have you thought of maybe that might be the best way to do things? If it's sin, it's sin, and you, we need to call it that, especially for those that are closest to us. And I know that that's difficult. I know that that's hard, but look at what they had to do. They were faithful in this. Moses and the sons of Levi, they were faithful in this, and that was way more difficult than us having to talk to somebody about it. They actually had to kill people. When God calls on us to bring conviction into the life of another person, specifically those closest to us, we need to love that person enough to love God enough to get that done. We need to love that person and love God so much so that we want to get that done. And it's, it should burden you. It should never be an easy thing when you have to bring conviction. I've shared that many times before. It should never be a fun thing for us to be the hammer the one to, to lower the boom on somebody. If it feels good, then you were probably the wrong person to deliver it. But if it hurts, if it's difficult, then you were the exact right person to do it. Because that means that you love that person. That means you have a heart for that person. We should have a heart for everybody, and that's where we're, we're headed. But sometimes we're not always there yet. But this was a difficult thing, but they followed through. They brought the accountability. Then in verse 30, it says, Now it came to pass on the next day that Moses said to the people, You have committed a great sin, so now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. And then Moses returned to the Lord, and he said, All these people have committed a great sin and have made for themselves a God of gold. Yet now if you will forgive their sin. But if not, I pray, blot me out of your book which you have written. And so Moses goes up again to stand in the gap once more. And so he tells the people, look, you've really blown it. This, is, this might not even be the end of it. You know, I, I made you drink that water. Then we had to kill nearly 3,000 people. But God might still not have forgiven everything. And so we're, I'm going to go up and I'm going to go talk to God. And so he goes up and he does this. He talks to God and then he says an amazing thing here. He says, yet now in verse 32, if you will forgive their sin. So he says, Please forgive their sin. But then he takes it one step further and he says, If not, I pray, blot me out of your book which you have written. In other words, if you can't forgive their sin, wipe me out instead and forgive their sin. This is a picture for us in the Old Testament of what Jesus has done in the New Testament for us. He said, Jesus came to be the propitiation for our sins. That big word that we throw out there means that he's the one that took the punishment. He's the one that took the blame. He endured all of that for us. That you would blot me out. In another way to, to describe it, it's as if saying, if you're not going to forgive any of them, the people here, send me to hell instead and still forgive them. What an amazing thing for somebody to say and what an amazing turn of events has taken place in Moses' life because at one point, he didn't even want to go talk to these people. He didn't even want to be counted among their number, and yet now he's willing to offer his eternal life on their behalf. And I would suggest to you that the reason that this change has taken place in his life is because he really had a living, breathing relationship with God. That he had experienced the glory of God, and he was constantly, consciously aware of God's presence in his life. You can't help but be changed when you have that in your life. 
I was sharing with the other services the fact that the more time that we spend with people, the more that, that we start to have similarities, the more that we start to become like them. You know, growing up, I can't tell you how many times I would come home from school and I would have the exact same conversation almost word for word with both of my parents hours apart. Because they have grown together so much, they know each other so well that their personalities even have grown to be similar. Their way of thinking in many ways has grown to be similar. And it's the same way in our relationship with Jesus. The closer we get to God, the more time we spend with him, the more time we spend in his word, in devotion, in prayer, even in service and worship, the more time that we spend with him, we can't help but be more like him. And that's what was taking place in Moses' heart and in Moses' life. And so he says, if you will not forgive their sin, blot me out of your book which you have written. And so in verse 33, the Lord tells Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot him out of my book. Therefore, go lead the people to the place of which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit for punishment, I will visit punishment upon them for their sin. And so the Lord plagued the people because of what they did with the calf which Aaron had made. And so the consequences weren't over, but their lives had been spared. The remaining people, their lives had been spared. And this was in large part due to Moses' attitude and Moses' heart and his relationship with God. And so that gets us to chapter 33, verse 1, where it says, The Lord said to Moses, Depart and go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt, to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, To your descendants I will give it. And I will send my angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanite, and the Amorite, and the Hittite, and the Perizzite, and the Hivite, and the Jebusite. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, for I will not go up in your midst, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people." Now, as you go through that passage, God is telling them all of these great things. God says, you know what? Get up, you and these people that you brought out of the land of Egypt, go to this land of milk and honey that I have promised to you and to your descendants, and I'm going to send my angel before you. My angel there, most of us believe this is a Christophany. This is an Old Testament appearance of Jesus Christ before he came to be birthed and to live as a human. He says, I will send my angel before you, and I'm going to drive out everybody that's that's already there. All the squatters that are there, we're going to send them out. Go up to this land flowing with milk and honey, and all of these things are great. This is awesome news. And then he drops this last thing in there. He says, for I will not go up in your midst, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. And so in verse 4, when the people heard this bad news, because that was worse than all of the good news put together, when the people heard this bad news, they mourned, and no one put on his ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, Say to the children of Israel, You are a stiff-necked people. I could come into your midst in one moment and consume you. Now therefore take off your ornaments, that I may know what to do to you. And so the children of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments by Mount Horeb. And for us, this is a picture in our lives of what it should look like when there is sin that has been unrepented. When there is sin in our lives, it should not be business as usual. We should not be able to, to just continually have a great time sinning. There should be a tug at your heart. There should be a pressing on your life that something is not right and something needs to change because we need to get right. God is giving them an outward picture of what's supposed to be taking inwardly. Is that things should not be business as usual. When there is sin taking place, when you are being stubborn 
against the voice of God in your life, there should be a, an obvious thing taking place. It should be tough. It should be hard for us to sit in sin. Obviously, we all sin. We still do. None of us is perfect here. But it should be difficult for us when we sin. It should be painful. There are different things that we sing in worship songs, and one of them is, break my heart for what breaks yours, and I guarantee you sin in our lives breaks the heart of God. Does it break our heart? Do we feel that conviction of the Holy Spirit? And so this is an outward picture of what's supposed to be taking place inside. And that brings us to verse 7, where we started this morning, where Moses takes his tent and he pitches it outside of the camp. And so he does this, and this is going to become the tabernacle of meeting. This is the place where you would go to meet with God. And so anybody that wanted to, to meet with God, that's where they would go. So this was a, I mean, it wasn't extremely difficult, but it was, it took some work. It took some work. It wasn't just like the, the experience that we have now as children of God. If you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, if you've given your life over to him, you are saved and you are a child of his, then you have access to God every moment of every day in any place, in any situation. And there's no uh, waiting period. You know, for those of you guys that are in the same boat as I am where you had to switch health plans and now you have waiting periods and all this crazy stuff. There's no waiting period with God. When you need him, he's right there. When you are ready to talk to him because he always wants to hear from us and he always wants to share with us. As soon as we're willing and ready, he's right there and available. But it was a little bit more difficult for them so they would actually have to go out. But we actually have more of the relationship that Moses had with God. Where in verse 11 it says, The Lord spoke to Moses face to face as a man speaks to a friend. And again, this, is not, this does not mean that Moses actually saw the face of God and they were conversing. They were sitting down like facing each other in two chairs. What this means is that the presence of God was there and the voice was clear and audible just as if they were talking face to face. Just as you hear me now, that's the way they heard the voice of God. That's the way Moses had this relationship. It was face-to-face, -face, as a man speaks to a friend. And I would suggest to you that that's what prayer in our lives is supposed to look like. It should be an intimate thing, but not intimate in the sense that, that nobody else needs to be a part of it. As much as intimate in the sense that we're talking to somebody that we know and that knows us. You know, there are conversations that we have with our friends, with our close friends, that we couldn't have with a stranger. You know, I, when, when I'm talking to people about relationships and friendships and all these things, I, I'm very logical. And to me, I, I break it up into categories. There are close friends, and those are friends. Then there are friends, and those are the people that, you know, you spend time with and you have similar interests and you can talk to about a lot of things, but maybe not as much as your close friends. And then you have acquaintances. And those are the people that you might see somewhere and you'll say hi to them, but you're probably never going to have that kind of closeness where you could talk to them about a difficult thing that's going on in your life. Or if you got a promotion at work, that would not be the person that you would call up and say, hey, guess what happened? And I would suggest to you that sometimes, for some of us, God gets bumped all the way down to that level. That prayer is more of a talking with an acquaintance than even talking with a friend or, or even more so a close friend. 
And it shouldn't be that way. It should be a close thing. It should be an intimate thing that we get to know God and that God already knows us and that we understand that he knows us. One of the things that I am a huge proponent of when it comes to prayer is honesty with God. There are people that will tell you, you know what, you shouldn't say that, that you're mad at God when you pray. Well, look, if you're mad at God, whether you say it when you're praying or not, God already knew. Okay, so let, let's, let's just cut to the chase there. When you have a question, when you're questioning something that God has done in your life, why did you do this? That's something that you bring to God. You don't have to shy away from that because God already knows your heart. He knows your mind. He knows the questions. He knows the thoughts and the desires, the intents of our hearts before we've even had them. Honesty and intimacy in our prayer life with God. That's how we get to know more of who he is. That's how we get to know his presence better. And so then we get to verse 12 where Moses says to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people. But you haven't let me know whom you will send with me. But you said... I know you by, my, by name, and you have also found grace in my sight. This unmerited favor. You be, you're telling me, God, that I have found grace in your sight. This unmerited favor. And you're telling me that, that I need to bring up this people, but you haven't told me how you're going to do it. You haven't told me what's, what's on your mind. Now, therefore, I pray in verse 13, if I truly have found grace in your sight, show me now your way, that I may know you and that I may find grace in your sight and consider that this nation is your people. And he said, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. This is the next thing that we pick up from Moses that we need to apply to our lives is that Moses already had this relationship that was just described in verse 11 that it was speaking to God face to face as if to a friend and yet that wasn't enough. He still needed to know God better, more intimately. And so he tells him, show me your way. Show me your way. It's not just show me the plan. But show me more of who you are. Show me your character. Show me your thought pattern. Show me the process that led to this. Show me your way. For those of us that are married, you kind of have an understanding of this. There are certain times when my wife says, go ahead, it's okay, you can go. And I know that that's what she means. And then there are certain times when my wife says, it's okay, go ahead, you can go. And I know that that's more like... Go ahead, and as soon as you walk out the door, I'm going to shoot daggers through your heart. And when you come back, it is going to be a miserable existence for you. It was the same words, sometimes very close to the same tone, but you know the difference. You know the difference because I know her way. I know her. I know who she is. I've spent time getting to know her and the way that she thinks, the way that she acts, the, the way that she does things. And that's what Moses is asking here. He wants to know God's way. It's not enough for me to just read it academically. It's not enough for me to just see what you've done. But Lord, I want to know your way. I want to know why. I want to know how this works. And so God doesn't rebuke him. God answers him in the positive. He says, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. And that's awesome. Because really, at the end of the day, that's what we're seeking most of the time, right? I mean, when you're going through a difficult time, one of the best things that you could have is just peace and rest. Peace and rest. And so God is telling them, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. And you would think that that would be enough. And yet Moses continues on in verse 15. He says to him, if your presence does not go with us, do not bring us up from here. 
In other words, you said that your presence was going to be with me, but you also said that your presence was not going to go with us. And if your presence does not go with us, do not bring us up from here. For how then will it be known that your people and I have found grace in your sight, except you go with us? So we shall be separate, your people and I, from all the people who are upon the face of the earth. And so the Lord said to Moses, I will also do this thing that you have spoken, for you have found grace in my sight, and I know you by name. So we continue to get a little bit more from God each time. It was a small answer that first time. He says, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. Now, the second time again, he doesn't rebuke him. He tells him, I will also do this thing you have spoken, for you have found grace in my sight, and I know you by name. And what is he going to do? He says that his presence will go with them. That's the next thing for us. Where God's presence is going with us, that's where we want to go. Where God says, my presence is not going to go with you in this direction, we don't go in that direction. If God is not in it, we don't want a part of it. That needs to be the attitude of our lives for everything. Not just when it comes to coming to church, not just when it comes to picking a church or choosing which Bible study or what ministry to serve in, or all of the different things relating to a church. That should be every area and aspect of our lives. If God's not in it, I don't want a part of it. If God is not going to be the one that's at the center of this decision, then it's going to be a bad decision. We need to get to that place where we understand that. If God is not in it, I don't want a part of it. And so he says, if your presence doesn't go with us, then why should we even go? The disciples would ask Jesus, after Jesus asked them, are you also going to leave me too? And they would respond by saying, where else could, would we go? Who else has the words of life? Is that our heart? If God is not going to go with us, does that mean that we immediately put an end to that? We need to. We need to be faithful to that. And he says, you have found grace in my sight and I know you by name. And then we get to the last section. He says in verse 18, please show me your glory. Show me your glory. He's gotten to know God so well that it's, when he speaks to him, it's face to face as if to a friend. And then he asks, to know God's way. And then that wasn't enough. So he asked that his presence would go with him. And still that wasn't enough. The last thing that he says is, show me your glory. And God's response is beautiful here. It's something that, that I had never seen before until I had recently heard a Bible study on it. In verse 19, then God said, I will make all my goodness pass before you. And I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But he said, you cannot see my face, for no man shall see me and live. And the Lord said, here is a place by me. You shall stand on the rock, so it shall be, while my glory passes by, that I will put you in the cleft of the rock, and will cover you with my hand while I pass by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. There's a song that we sang this morning that, that I've really grown to love. And it's called Holy Spirit. And for the longest time, I fought against that. There were many people that said, how come we don't sing this song? I had people on the worship team, how come we don't sing this song? People, when we would go to do outreaches, how come you guys don't sing this song? They said, well, you know, I just don't feel comfortable with it. I don't, lyrically and theologically, I just, I, it doesn't, doesn't resonate. I don't, I don't see how that fits biblically. And then I heard this amazing Bible study on this one small verse where Moses has asked, please show me your glory. 
And then God's response is, I will make all my goodness pass before you. Moses asks, I want to see your glory. I've gotten all these other things, but I want to see your glory. And God's response is, I will show you all my goodness. That the glory of God's goodness is something to be desired. Something for us to desire, to partake in, to experience. He says, I will make all my goodness pass before you. When we studied through the book of Genesis and we went through the story of creation and how the world was made, what, what would happen at the end of each day? He saw it and he said that it was good. We talked about what that meant. To be complete, without fault, perfect, and blameless. It was good. And so when Moses says, show me your glory, God's response is, I will make all my goodness pass before you. The glory of God's goodness. What does that look like in a life? What does that look like for us in modern times, in, in today's day and age? What does that look like, the glory of God's presence before us? It's a very, very different kind of a relationship that we have now post the, the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ as to what they had back in the Old Testament with Moses and this, this friendship, this relationship that he had with God. Moses didn't have that experience yet. And yet for us, that's an experience that we can have all the time. Maybe not in its fullness, just as Moses couldn't see the fullness of God's glory. But we can all experience God's glory. And I would suggest to you that what that looks like on a day-to-day -day basis in somebody's life is the hand of God as it impacts, as it changes, as it does the work in a person's life. The glory of God's goodness in our lives are those rough edges that God is continually smoothing out. Those things that maybe 10 years ago, five years ago, two years ago, whatever it was, that we used to struggle so much with and it was so hard to let go of. And now it's almost as if those things have just completely lost all worth and value in our lives because we've been able to allow God to take them away from us. That's the glory of God's goodness. The glory of God's goodness as somebody is coming to the end of their life here on earth and they have that perfect peace that passes all understanding where they can honestly look at you and they can tell you, don't be sad for me. I'm looking forward to what's coming next. That's the glory of God's goodness. We should want to experience that. And not just once, not just at the end of our life, not just when things are difficult. We should want to experience that all the time. That should be our desire, to be able to ask God, show me your glory. Let me see the glory of your goodness. And don't just let me see it in my life. Let me see the glory of your goodness in everyone. Let me be able to see your hand at work and how you want to work in and through me to impact the lives of those around me. Show me the glory of your goodness. In Romans chapter 3, verse 23, this is kind of as we wrap it up here, it shows us our need for the glory of God because it says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. 
Well, what does that have to do with anything? Well, in verse 24, he says, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness, because in his forbearance, God had passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus means that we all fall short of the glory of God, but we have the opportunity to partake in that as part of our inheritance through Jesus Christ. A couple of chapters later, in Romans chapter 5, Paul writes in verse 1, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace. Again, it is unmerited. It's not something that we have done anything to deserve. We have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in what? In hope of the glory of God. This is something that God wants us to desire. The glory of his presence. The glory of his goodness. That we would, as we sang this morning, be consciously aware of his presence and his hand at work in our lives. That it would be more than just words that we say, more than just Christian cliches that we sing, but that we would truly desire that. There was a, a man that, that I believe exemplified this. Obviously Jesus, but, but outside of Jesus there was another biblical example, and this is where we'll begin to wrap it up. Acts chapter 7, verses 54 through 60. It's a man named Stephen. And when the people had heard the things that Stephen had told to them, they were cut to the heart, and they gnashed at him with their teeth. And verse 55, but he being full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven, and he saw the glory of God. And Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, look, I see the heavens open, and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Now what does that do to Stephen? What kind of a, a change does that make in his life? In verse 57, then the people cried out with a loud voice, stopped their ears, and they ran at him with one accord, and they cast him out of the city, and they stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. They are killing him with stones. And they stoned Stephen as he was calling on God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. So this is the first thing that it enabled him to do. It enabled him to find rest and to find peace even in the midst of one of what we would call the most difficult things that you could go through in this life. They are bludgeoning him to death. But it also does something so much greater. Because in the next verse, verse 60, it says, Then he knelt down and he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Do not charge them with this sin. Luke 23, verse 24, Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. These are the only two places that I see it. Now we have accounts in Fox's Book of Martyrs, and then there are modern-day accounts of other people doing the very same thing. But biblically, in, in the biblical text, these are the two places that I see it. In the Old Testament, you also have the, maybe what you would call a two-and-a-half, where Moses stands in the gap and he says, if you're not going to forgive them, blot me out. But Stephen, immediately upon seeing the glory of God's goodness, is then able to turn around and in peaceful rest, lay down his life, and then say, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. The very people that were killing him, he was able to forgive them and to stand in the gap on their behalf. What a tremendous example that is for us. We talked about Moses and how his heart had turned towards these people, but these were his people. 
Stephen's heart had turned so much so that the very people that were trying to kill him and would eventually do that in short order, that he was able to stand in the gap for them. That is what happens when we truly experience the glory of God's goodness in our lives. When we get to know him so well, so intimately, it changes us. There's no way that it can't. It has to change us. And if you don't feel like you're being changed, then you need to ask just like Moses did. Show me your glory. Show me your goodness. And I guarantee you, we know that God wants that for us. We know that he wants us to experience his presence. He wants us to be aware of it. He wants us to be filled with his Holy Spirit. He wants us to see the glory of his presence. And he's promised that if it's his desire and then we pray according to his will, that he's faithful to grant those requests. So if you don't feel like you've gotten that, ask for it. And I guarantee you, God is going to do some amazing things. And if you already feel like you have, be like Moses. Ask for more. Let me see more of who you are. Let me see more of your way. Let me see more of your presence in my life. Let me see more of the glory of your goodness. Let me see as much as is humanly possible. Let me be overcome and overwhelmed. The last thing, another description or another application for that glory of God's goodness in our lives is when you are spending time in worship, whether that's reading your Bible, whether that's spending time singing together as a body, whether that's spending time singing together on your own, whether it's time in prayer, whatever it is, that there are times in our lives that we have become so overwhelmed that we can't even speak. You just can't bring anything else out. Sometimes there's tears, sometimes there's not. Sometimes there's that lump in their throat, sometimes there's not. But that you are just so overwhelmed by the closeness of God in that moment. That should be something that we desire, not just a once, a time, once in a lifetime, not just once a year or once a decade. We should desire that all the time. It's not possible. We have to come down from the mountain at times. But we should desire to be on that mountaintop all the time. Amen? Let's pray.